Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Hello, welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And the Supreme Court has been busy, as you know. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I wanted to start off the show with something I found that I think will kind of set the tone of where I'm going to go with this. So let me, let me read this. The national government of the United States must take the lead in safeguarding the civil rights of all Americans. We believe that this is one of the most important observations that can be made about the civil rights problem in our country today. We agree with words used by the president in an address at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington in June 1947. We must make the federal government a friendly, vigilant defender of the rights and equalities of all Americans. Our national government must show the way. It is essential that our rights be preserved against the tyrannical actions of public officers. Our forefathers saw the need for such protection when they gave us the Bill of Rights as a safeguard against arbitrary government. But this is not enough today. We need more than protection of our rights against government. We need protection of our rights against private persons or groups seeking to undermine them. In the words of the president, we cannot be content with a civil liberties program which emphasizes only the need of protection against the possibility of tyranny by the government. We must keep moving forward with new concepts of civil rights to safeguard our heritage. The extension of civil rights today means not the protection of people against the government, but protection of the people by the government. This document I'm reading from also stated several reasons why they believed the federal government needed to play a role in improving civil rights. 
I'm going to list three. First, many of the most serious wrongs against individual rights are committed by private persons or by local public officers. Second, it is a sound policy to use the idealism and prestige of our whole people to check the wayward tendencies of a part of them. Third, our civil rights record has growing international implications. What I read from was a document called to secure these rights. This was a document that came from a commission that was set up by President Harry S. Truman. And he did that in light of an incident that took place with a young man, I think his name was Isaac Norwood, and y'all can check it out if you want to. But this brother was in South Carolina. He had just gotten back literally from deployment with the U.S. Army. He was stopped by police. And after the encounter, the attack, he was left permanently blinded. This, when the news got to President Truman about this incident, he was deeply offended. To the point where he felt that the very least he could do as president was to end segregation in the armed forces. To paraphrase him, he basically said, we are sending these men over to defend this nation and the world, carrying the vestiges of what is worst amongst us. And that these men who serve our country should be treated with respect and dignity within the confines of the armed forces of the United States. And so he created his commission. And then of course the commission was geared toward more than just the military. He talks about the military, but the commission talks about the military and it's, need to desegregate and to end any practice of discrimination within the armed forces. But it talks about America as a whole. It even had an interesting statistic that in the last presidential election, prior to that commission being established, that In the states where there were eight states in the United States at that time that implemented a poll tax, you can guess what part of the country that poll tax was implemented in those eight states. Mississippi was one of them. Georgia was one of them, too. In those eight states, voting participation was at 18 percent. 
in the other 40 states, because D.C. couldn't vote in presidential elections at the time and Hawaii and Alaska had not been admitted to the union. So in the other 40 states, voting participation was at 68%. States that had oppressive, uh, suppressive, right? Suppressive voting laws, 18%. States that did not, almost 70. So this is what that, commission was trying to highlight that laws that discriminate laws that oppress laws that suppress American citizens laws that in their opinion violated the essence of the 14th amendment the equal protection clause were detrimental to the growth of the nation and its standing in the world. Let me read something else. And this came from, like I said, this was in the 1940s, 1948. What I'm going to read now happened last week. And it was part of the dissent to the Supreme Court ruling dealing with students for fair admissions versus the president and fellows of Harvard College, which was one of the two schools. Um, The other school that was sued was the University of North Carolina. And that Supreme Court case was dealing with affirmative action, as you well know, in the practice of admitting students into their respective institutions. And mind you that these schools had been guided by previous Supreme Court decisions, uh, most notably the Bollinger cases, which said that race cannot be the only factor, right? And admissions that you see that you need some black students or you want to increase black students so you just admit black kids or you give black kids points right? That are, you know, just like if, if you apply for a job as a veteran, right? And some, especially at some federal jobs, you apply for a job as a veteran. Um, they give you points for that, right? So your application will be viewed higher than person that wasn't a veteran and that was designed to give veterans opportunities to get jobs once they come out of the service. 
And there are private employers, excuse me, that do that same thing. They, they ask you. And it's voluntary. You don't have to answer those part of the applications when you apply. You don't have to state your race. You don't have to state your disability. You don't have to state your gender, even. Uh, and you definitely don't have to answer the question about veterans, right? All these applications have that in there, but you can check a box saying, I don't want to respond. So, um, all that is in there. And so these states were trying to, in their admissions policy, following the Bollinger decisions in the early 2000s, um, to make sure that in trying to achieve their goal to make their campuses more diverse, that they were as race neutral as they could be. Right. And, you know, now, of course I was living in Mississippi for a good portion of my life prior to the a whole decade before the Bollinger decisions came out, there was a decision, the United States versus Fordyce. A lot of people don't talk about that, you know, but, and Mississippi was in the midst of a lawsuit, what we call the heirs case, where we were saying that those historically black colleges were being underserved resource-wise compared to the historically white colleges that were in the state system. And that case lasted for decades. And during my time in the legislature, there was a settlement and it was nearly a billion dollars. Ironic thing in that settlement was that there was a requirement of the black schools, Mississippi Valley, Alcorn and Jackson State, as part of the settlement that they had to have within a, a year or two of the settlement that they had to have 50% enrollment from white students, right? Or 50% of the, yeah, 50% enrollment from white students. So those schools were implementing scholarships to white students, right? But now, United States versus Fordyce, which kind of came out of that in a sense, where the state was trying to prove that they were not discriminating against students. As a matter of fact, that time, if you were black and you wanted to go to the University of Ole Miss Law School, you could go uh, and you would have a scholarship, right? Uh, and so... You know, that was just part of what each the, the, the college board was doing at these. That's just an example of what they were doing at these three historically white schools, because there's others, of course. You have Delta State and University for Women. But those three main schools um, was 
really kind of the target. And the Supreme Court basically said, hey, look, if y'all are still doing things that would make it hard for a black kid to get into those schools, you need to stop. No matter what you've been doing to correct a problem, if you still have some enrollment barriers for those kids, then you need to get rid of those. And people have a right to challenge that. Right? So anyway, in light of all that and through this, and, and I encourage people to read, period. But I encourage y'all to read uh, the dissent by Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, who recused herself from the Harvard case, but she was basing her opinions on the UNC case even though those two cases were combined initially when she came on the court, they separated them just for the convenience for her to rule on one of the two, which was the UNC case. And so even though the title of her descent comes with the Harvard label, she really was addressing University of North Carolina. And this this is, like I said, it's very compelling. And it's 29 pages. It's not really long, single space. It's not really long because narrow margins. So it's not really long, but, you know, she goes through history and all this kind of stuff, court history, African-American history, all that stuff. But in part B of her, the start of part B of her descent was what I wanted to highlight. It says, the overarching reason the majority gives for becoming an impediment to racial progress, that its own conception of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause leaves it no other option, has a wholly self-referential two-dimensional flatness. The majority of and concurring opinions rehearse this court's idealistic vision of racial equality from Brown forward with the appropriate lament for past indiscretions. But the race-linked race gaps that the law, aided by this court, previously founded and fostered which indisputably define our present reality are strangely absent and do not seem to matter. With let them eat cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And having so detached itself from this country's actual past and present experiences, the court has now been lured into interfering with the crucial work that UNC and other institutions of higher learning 
are doing to solve America's real-world problems. No one benefits from ignorance. Although formal, formal race-linked legal barriers are gone, race still matters to the lived experiences of all Americans in innumerable ways. And today's ruling makes things worse, not better. The best that can be said of the majority's perspective is that it proceeds ostrich-like from the hope that preventing consideration of race will end racism. But if that is its motivation, the majority proceeds in vain. If the colleges of this country are required to ignore a thing that matters, it will not just go away. It will take longer for racism to leave us. And ultimately, ignoring race just makes it matter more. The only way out of this morass for all of us is to stare at racial disparity unblinkingly and then do what evidence and experts tell us is required to level the playing field and march forward together, collectively striving to achieve true equality for all Americans. It is no small irony that the judgment the majority hands down today will forestall the end of race-based disparities in this country, making the colorblind world the majority wistfully touts much more difficult to accomplish. As a civil war neared its conclusion, General William T. Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton convened a meeting of black leaders in Savannah, Georgia. This is where we get the 40 acres and mule from, and I'll get to that in a minute. During the meeting, someone asked Garrison Frazier, the group spokesperson, what freedom meant to him. He answered, placing us where we could reap the fruit of our own labor and taking care of ourselves to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. Today's gaps exist because that freedom was denied far longer than it was ever afforded. So I took a lot of time to read those two things because I want you to get a context of why we as African-Americans are very, very disturbed by this ruling. Now, we have a way out. But just so you understand why I wanted to include that anecdote about General Sherman's meeting with formerly enslaved black folks. In Georgia. Was like I said, that's based off of that meeting. That's where Sherman got the idea about 40 acres and a mule. Right. And they were going to section off land in the eastern part of Georgia, primarily the eastern seaboard. And this was going to be a place where people were going to formerly enslaved persons were going to be allowed to have land. And to be able to build wealth. Right. So they could 
establish themselves as full class, first class citizens in America. Very similar to what was going on with the westward expansion, right? Needless to say, that didn't happen. And because that did not happen, and because despite the attempts during Reconstruction of the Freedmen's Bureau and all this stuff, right, the contraband schools, all of that, because that experiment only lasted for 10 years and it was vigorously opposed during that whole time, because the Freedmen Bureau fell under the Department of the Army and those folks who were opposed to giving black folks opportunities of wealth and self-sufficiency would vote against the budget for the Department of the Army or would diminish their budget even where they would be struggling to try to make the Freeman's Bureau work and be effective. So in base of all that, that, that historical foundation that we as black folks had to deal with, right? Not to mention, which Justice Jackson does mention, the segregation Jim Crow laws and that were in place, right? The terrorism that took place, right? And that's part of what that secure our rights, secure to the, to secure these rights that commission was dealing with, the terrorism part. Um that we didn't have an equal playing field. And I would love for Tim Scott to be right. I would love for these black conservatives that get on social media or out here in the political diaspora and say that there's no racism in America, that everybody's got a fair shot, yada, yada, yada. I wish they were right. There would be no need for me to be doing this podcast or I'd be talking about something totally different on a podcast. But unfortunately, it's not. They are not right. There have been hurdles placed and the hurdles that were there have slowly, not immediately, slowly been dismantled. And just when it looks like, right, that we're about to get to another place, just when it looks like that we're about to take it to another level, just when it looks like maybe we can achieve this quote-unquote post-racial America, there is this incredible backlash from the white community as the... uh, if I go back to the commission, um, the wayward tendencies <laughs> of part of them, right? That that's that's what we're dealing with. These wayward 
tendencies. That's a polite way of saying pushback. And pushback is a nice way of saying authoritarianism, fascism, and terrorism. Right? But even more so than that, right? We've got two other decisions that came in. One that said that the president's attempt to forgive student loans was unconstitutional. The president gave a press conference and he basically told them, this is what I'm going to do to circumvent that. So that fight's going to go on. But there's some importance in that as far as black folk. And then the other decision that came in was this lady named Lori Smith, who lives in Colorado, who wants to have a web designing service. It's not an existing business or it wasn't an existing business at the time that she presented some concerns. Because, see, I can't even say a case because usually cases with the Supreme Court, something has happened. Somebody challenged what happens, basically says a tort was committed, right? That there was some injury involved. And then it moves up the, the court food chain till it gets to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court decides they want to hear it, then they bring it on. This was an unusual case because this woman claimed that she had concerns about a law in Colorado that basically said, you can't discriminate against people to do business with. You can't use objections, right? And and they passed this law in reaction to the situation with, if y'all remember, the baker who didn't want to do a cake for a same-sex wedding, right? So Colorado did something preemptive and said, okay, well, we're going to pass a law saying you can't do that in our state. So this woman hooked up with an organization, a conservative organization. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, this organization was part of the group, I think they did a amicus curiae brief on behalf of the pro-life folks with Dobbs. And uh, and they may have provided legal thing, I, I don't know their total thing, but I know they were involved with that. And so they took this woman's hypothetical. This is something, this is, sounds like this was like a, a moot court exercise, right? Something that if you go to law school or you were in high school and you participate in these state moot courts, this would be something that they would throw out there and, and you know, to test these children's acumen about the law or teach them some acumen about the law, right? But the Supreme Court actually took this hypothetical case and ruled on it. Now, I take personal offense <laughs> to it because 
me and Stephanie Parker Weaver and others were plaintiffs in a case when we were dealing with business improvement districts in the state of Mississippi, primarily in Jackson. And we were making an argument that it violated Baker versus Carr, um, that it didn't apply the principle of one member or vote, one vote. It was basically whoever had the most property had the most votes in that district. And my first debate in the legislature when I got in was dealing with amending that particular law. So as it worked its way through, it got to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court threw it out. And Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion explaining why they weren't going to review it. It was because they said me and the other plaintiffs didn't own property in the city of Jackson, or at least didn't own any property in the, in the business improvement district. Therefore we had no standing. Right. But yet a woman who had a business in theory throughout a dilemma in theory and the Supreme court not only heard it, but ruled on it. They gave this woman with an imaginary scenario standing. And then they ruled and said that yes, under the first amendment, she could deny people business which goes against a lot of the court presidents that precedents that dealt with business and discrimination, which is why that decision is just as scary, if not more scary than the affirmative action decision. So because I took a lot of time reading, um, I'll get into more commentary on the other side. And so we are back. Affirmative action in the United States really started with Reconstruction, right? We touched on that. Because it was imperative that to some politicians that these enslaved people had to be able to sustain themselves, right? And so that's why you had the Freeman's Bureau and all that. And in those states where, in those southern states where black folks became politically powerful, that's why they were pushing for, and you've heard me 
over and over again on this podcast, highlight the fact that public education was the key and made public education an actual right for citizens. That they were entitled to have a free public education. Because that was something that one, they connected with building wealth as well as something that was really, really denied them outside of their freedom. Right? Besides their overall freedom, a subsect of that denial was education. It was against the law in many states for slaves to read. It was against the law in some states for them to even go to church, let alone read a Bible, right? And so once people started figuring out a way to interpret the Bible for slaves to understand that this is okay, this is your place, that's when they started letting black folks engage, at least in church. But if they felt that the church was accurately interpreting interpreting the Bible and encouraging folks to revolt, then they shut that down, right? So anyway, how we got to where we are now and how we define affirmative action uh, has an interesting history, right? The first real target of affirmative action outside of black folks during Reconstruction was labor unions. Because a lot of businesses were against organizations that were telling their employees that they shouldn't be working you like that. You should have a weekend. You shouldn't have to work more than eight hours a day. You know, stuff like that. Children under the age of 16, 17, 18 shouldn't be in factories working. So corporate America didn't want that. And so they were doing things to discriminate against unions. If you are a member of a union, there are some companies that wouldn't hire you, right? So post-World War II, well, actually during, during, I'm sorry, during the Depression, prior to World War II, the Roosevelt administration started doing some things to challenge that. And there was actually a bill called the Wagner Act that outlawed that, right? And that was when they actually used the first time the the phrase affirmative action was used. Now, and then, of course, I just told you about President Truman and how he desegregated the military. Well, and that fell under affirmative action. Um. But then they give President Kennedy a lot of credit for affirmative action as it is because he used that term in 
an executive order, which basically said that if you, it's more than just federal employees. If you get money from the federal government for any reason, if you're a defense contractor, if you're a school or whatever, you can't discriminate. As a matter of fact, you need to be trying to get black people either subcontractors or students or whatever, right? And then Lyndon Johnson, after Kennedy died, pushed through and got past the Civil Rights Act. People forget that while he was in the U.S. Senate, the 57 version of that, of a Civil Rights Act or Civil Rights Bill, he pushed that through as well. But as president, the 1964 Civil Rights Act that most of our anti-discrimination policies are based off of currently. Uh, Johnson carried that through. That was Kennedy's idea, but Johnson brought it home. And then a year later, he got the Voting Rights Act path. So fast forward to now. We have seen efforts to try to figure out a way to turn back the clock by these people with wayward tendencies to take us back. And Mike Pence even said it. If you find an interview, and Mike Pence did, Mike was in Ukraine meeting with Zelensky when the Supreme Court decision went through about affirmative action. And he used a phrase, the Supreme Court turned America back. And he wasn't saying it as a derogatory thing. He was saying it as a good thing. Right. And so understand that the people that you are dealing with, right? Whether it's this crazy boy, Charlie Kirk, who um, Turning Point USA, he's got like three hours of radio and TV time every day, which is amazing. But he, you know, and he said some disparaging things about Justice Jackson, especially in response to her dissent, right? But it's people like him and others that want America to have this homogenous look. It's a white Christian nationalist look. A white supremacist Christian nationalist look. And, you know, there are people that say, well, you know, I agree with some things he says and da 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 da, or these people or whatever. And that if you are black in America, 
despite what political affiliation you claim to identify with, these folks are not on your side. And, you know, there were six justices that voted to end affirmative action, as we know it, in the school admissions policy. But, of course, everybody targeted on Clarence Thomas. One, because Clarence actually wrote a concurring opinion to the majority opinion. But two, because he wouldn't be where he was if it wasn't for affirmative action. And he took offense to that. There's a podcast called Slow Burn. Y'all need to check that out. And if you, I think if you got Amazon Prime, they have all these cool PBS documentaries. And I forget the name of the one that deals with Clarence Thomas. But if you watch that and you listen to Slow Burn, you'll understand why Clarence Thomas is against affirmative action. But to give you the Reader's Digest version, he's against affirmative action because he felt that affirmative action, that that denotation diminished him, right? He felt that people didn't take him seriously or didn't give him the credit he deserved because of affirmative action. They felt, well, you know, he was black, so we had to get some black folks in, especially like at Holy Cross, right, where he went to undergrad, you know. And if you listen to his fellow black alums at Holy Cross, the Clarence Thomas that we know now is wasn't the Clarence Thomas back then. <laughs> he was more like Riza and, and Dr. Umar and Huey P. Newton and all those folks back then. But I'm just saying that's not the Clarence Thomas we know now. But the reason why is because he took offense. And I think that's why there's that 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 reveals a lot because I think that's the reason why you have some black folks who don't like affirmative, you know, these terms affirmative action and quotas and you know, civil rights. They don't like that because they feel that it diminishes their accomplishments. If they feel that it it minimizes their status. They feel that, you know, they got to talk just like I got to talk, just like every black kid got to talk, that you got to be twice, maybe three times as good as the white person to get a fair shot. Right. And these folks did that. They 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 applied themselves and they put themselves in positions to succeed and they did succeed despite all the barriers that society and our government has put on us. Right. And I say our government, whether willingly or unwillingly, burdens that they put on us. And so they don't, they want to get credit for actually achieving what they did. They don't want it, the stigma of saying, well, the only reason why you got where you are, right? We just had a state legislator, a white state legislator in a southern state, and I want to say North Carolina challenge a black state legislator who went to Harvard saying, well, the only, you know, implying that the only reason why he got Harvard education because he could play sports. Right. And that black legislator had to check him, <laughs> you know? So they put that stigma on and then 
But here's the funny thing, right? 75% of the white kids who go to Harvard got in because they're a legacy, right? There are literally kids who are going to Harvard because their great-granddaddy's name is on a building. Or their parents went. Justice Jackson did this beautiful story, a comparative about here's one guy. Let's just say there's one guy, his his parents attended the University of North Carolina census, you know, somebody, his family has attended University of North Carolina since its inception in 1789, right? And then here's this black kid who he's first generation going to college and both of them are applying at UNC at the same time. And she went through, you got to read it. It's brilliant, right? So, you know, we, we've got these from, and then this guy, Edward Bloom, who orchestrated um, these lawsuits against Harvard and UNC with the student uh, for fair representation, this organization he, he established. Um, and he's really had a hard on against affirmative action. <laughs> he's really been, but that started again because of bitterness. So he ran for Congress years ago and he ran in this incredibly Ugly. If you saw the map, you would be like, oh, that's crazy. Who came up with this? This gerrymandered district that was created because Texas at that time when he ran got three additional seats in Congress. And so they were trying to increase the amount of minority representation in Congress in Texas. And so in this map, they they came up with all they came up with this computer formulation and needless to say, he, he got beat, right? Democrats won. So he sued along with other folks that ran in other districts, and they won their case. And Texas had to redraw those lines, right? So he equates that, and so he equates affirmative action with that, right? But here's the ironic thing. While Bloom was successful with this case and dismantling affirmative action, this same Supreme Court earlier this month basically ruled against Alabama for drawing congressional maps that would deny black people in that state a second congressional district. So the Voting Rights Act still is alive with this Supreme Court based on that decision. But the guy who challenged that very provision of the Supreme Court, I mean, of the Voting Rights Act, was successful in the same session in ending affirmative action at universities. Right? Are you seeing a connection? This is the reason why we have these backlashes because people are building political movements or basing a lot of their political ideology on anger, right? 
You can make the argument, well, you know, you liberal folks, or you 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 pro black folks, y'all 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 are angry all the time. I guess. But it's one thing to say that I'm going to base my whole political movement off of one event that happened in my life as opposed to something that's systematically denying me, my family, my friends, my coworkers, whoever, a whole community of people because of the way that God made us. Right? It's a whole different conversation. It's a whole different type of angst, if you will. Right? So I didn't lose a sporting event and then turn around and say, well, one of the people, neither to say that neither, I can understand in that sporting event, because I'm not going to call the girl's name, but it, it, it and, you know, feel free to interject. <laughs> but if I finished in sixth place and the person that I'm mad at finished in fifth place, neither one of us won. Right. So I should be mad at the person that finished first, not the one that finished just ahead of me and neither one of us won the race. And you want to build a political movement off of that. I'm just saying, check your ego at the door. Because if you were all that, and at one time, I understand you were, then you would have been in first place instead of sixth. Nonetheless. But it's, it's, it's this anger that is used to, and this fear that is used to maintain and build up these political resistance movements. The actual fear that black folks are going to replace white folks. This is not something new with CRT. This has been the whole time. The reason why Haiti was never recognized or wasn't initially recognized as a sovereign independent nation run by black folks was because of replacement theory fears. Well, if the slaves can revolt in Haiti, they can revolt in the United States, which probably would have been true, but still wasn't right. And so this has been going on in America forever. The whole reason why you have this classification is to make sure that you kept people in their place. And so when organizations trying to rectify this historical setback want to factor in race, that's a problem. You can have your own personal agenda and be mad at the world and create a whole political movement. You can raise millions of dollars and pack money and do all this stuff and, and, take cases of the Supreme Court and all that, but a people where a system was designed to hold them back, they can't say anything. Or if they do say something, y'all are just complaining 
all the time. Why are y'all going to be happy? <laughs> right? And and then you do stuff on the side and think that we don't catch it. This woman, Lori Smith, and I'm calling her by name because she is the most unique person in the United States right now because she had no standing to take a case before the Supreme Court, yet the Supreme Court ruled in her favor. So she's the most unique human being in the United States right now. I would dare say one of the most powerful people in the United States, because if you get approached to the Supreme Court with no standing and they agree with you, you bad. Right? Her case opens the door for whites only, colored only signs again. Now, I know the focus is on the LGBTQ community as far as like discrimination against them and Clarence Thomas's dog whistle, well, blatant out threat that I'm going to look at Obergefell if I get the chance to. But based on the president that you just sent with Laurie Smith, you don't have to wait for a case to come. Y'all can just, I guess, decide. The right person, the right billionaire takes you on the right trip. I, I guess you can just decide on what cases you you want to hear. You ain't got to go through the steps like all the other Supreme Court cases in history have done. Y'all can just do it. But for black folks, this opens the door with the way that these folks, these folks are reading the 14th Amendment, just like if you follow DC Comics, there's Superman and then there's Bizarro, right? The reverse Superman. <laughs> they, they're reading it in Bizarro world terms. They're reading it in reverse. And, and to say that, well, this def affirmative action defeats the purpose of the 14th Amendment. No, it is the spirit of the 14th Amendment. It is actually what it was. It's like, look, these folks are citizens. And they need to be treated as citizens and steps need to be taken place under the Equal Protection Clause to make that so. Anything opposite of that is not the intention of the 14th Amendment. So when you make it harder for black kids to go to UNC or Harvard or Yale or University of Texas or wherever else they're trying to sue, right? That defeats the purpose of the 14th Amendment. When you tell people that their First Amendment right for religious expression is more important than equal protection under the law when they want to do business. See, that's where the public accommodations thing comes in. If you're going to do business, like in the state of Colorado or anywhere, then that's different than if you were just approached on the street. Hey man, I know you do websites me and my boy about to get married, you know, would you, would you do the website for it? No, nah, it's against my religion. Okay, cool. 
But now if you got a business saying, I do websites for X amount of dollars and somebody approaches you as your business, I, not a trained lawyer, not a legal constitutional scholar, but somebody who actually had to take an oath under that constitution actually had to create laws, right? My understanding is that that's discrimination. But this Supreme Court says no. So if that's, that's okay, and it wasn't even a real situation, if that's okay, then hypothetically, some white person can say, hey, you know, these black folks are the children of Ham, descendants of Ham. And, you know, Ham was cursed. So in my Christian nationalist belief, I don't want to serve them. Right. They can be just like Lester Maddox in the picnic restaurant. Right. With Pickwick, Pickwick or picnic, wherever it was, Pickwick. toothpicks or bats or whatever they call them and drive black businesses, black customers out the store or away from the store or whatever. That's okay. Based on what the Supreme Court did in this Lori Smith case. Now they're going to say, no, it's not like that. Yes, it is. If you say that I have a right that my one, one constitutional right trumps another yeah that's exactly what you're saying so you know and, and trust me if by 2025 the American people have not made a political statement expressing, excuse me, how they don't like this trend, this wayward tendency that's happening. They don't make a clear, definitive statement nationwide against this. We're going to get there. If somehow, some way, the American people decide that Donald Trump, whether he's indicted or not, whether he's even convicted or not, should be president again, it's coming back. That's real. If George Santos can stay in Congress, if Marjorie Taylor Greene can continue to be unfeathered and Lauren Bo, all these people, if you keep giving them political power, then all this stuff that you think, oh, I'm just being a harbinger or bad news, all that's going to come to fruition. It's going to happen. Because history tells us it does, not just in the United States, but worldwide. You can control the press. You can control the court. You can control the other levers of power, the legislative branch, the executive branch. The business people are going to come along because all they're about is making money. They're going to go right along with it. But 
But as long as there's resistance to that, then we have a chance. And everybody's like, well, you know, Supreme Court, they, uh, you know, they, they're there for a lifetime. Yeah, they are. But there's no rule says that it just has to be nine of them. Now, Joe Biden, President Biden, I disagree with you, President. I, you know, they, um, you got asked about expanding the Supreme Court. And you're like, well, it'll make it more political. No kidding. <laughs> it's already political, bro. It's 6-3 against you right now. It's already political. Mitch McConnell made it political when he denied Barack Obama one seat prior to the 2016 election. And then prior to the 2020 election, he allowed a seat to be filled. They, four years, they already, they, they, they couldn't help but be hypocritical. He said, well, no, we don't want a president that's going out to pick somebody. But you allowed the next president who was going out because he wasn't going to win. <laughs> right. The, the handwriting was on the wall by that time. That's why you went ahead and allowed him to do it. Therefore, he ended up getting three. Because the natural way came in. If you had done it the right way, he would have only got one. But since you maneuvered it, you got three. So it's six, three. And <laughs> it's already political, Mr. President. So the reason why we have nine is because there were nine judicial districts, federal judicial districts. Now there's 11. So we should have two more because each judge, and I think I've explained this on the podcast because each Supreme court justice is supposed to be given a district to preside over. And, you know, as the cases go up, then that, Supreme Court justice makes that determination whether that case should go, you know, brings before the Supreme Court. They they're like the they they have the administrative responsibility, even though they don't appoint anybody. They 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 have that kind of responsibility about making sure that those districts have what they need, right? So of course that means that there's a couple of justices that have two districts they work with instead of it one-on-one -on -one when it was just nine now there's 11 so there should be 11 now if you did that and you gave it Joe Biden it's still 6-5 so you still have a conservative majority right but it's in keeping with historical practice but as we see, historical practice that's progressive is not in the best interest of this conservative, white Christian, supremacist, nationalist movement.
They don't care about that. But history that favors them, they all, let's go back to those days where black people couldn't go to college, all that. And, and by the way, push come to shove, right? And, and I only saw one HBCU president post this. I thought it'd be a bunch of them. <laughs> but I did see one say, hey, you know, we're open. If you can't go to Harvard, you can't go to UNC, you come see us. I'm sure my alma mater would love to have people that thought that they were good enough to get into Harvard or UNC or, or Yale or whatever, decide, well, you know, I don't want to go through that hassle. Let me apply to Jackson State. I'm sure we would love to have that. Florida A&M, Howard, Morehouse. I, I, if you go to any of those schools, you can compete with them folks from the Ivy League anyway. I guarantee you that. I, I went to school with people that would run MIT folks out the room. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. And you say, oh, you just talking that. I'm telling you. People, a lot of people go to college based on proximity to their family, not necessarily because of the name of the school. You have a lot of brilliant people that go to all these different colleges. I think Tim Scott went to Charleston Southern, right? You know, I'm just picking on them. <laughs> I'm figuring out. But seriously, you can you can go to any college you want to and achieve, right? And if these folks are playing these games again where they're trying to restrict you, well, not unless you're athletic. But see, Harvard doesn't have athletic scholarships, so trying to figure out how they got that athletic exemption. Now, if your daddy went to Harvard, well, you whether you black or white or Latino or Asian or whatever, you got a shot at getting in. You should, because the legacy thing is still there. Bloom thought somehow, some way, that decision that they made, the case that he just won, stopped that? No. no. It's very clear that it didn't stop that. If you go back and find his press conference, he basically was saying that that's over with. No, the legacy thing ain't over with. Just the race thing. Just the black folks. That's over. So, you know, there's over 100 HBCUs that black folks can go to. The more the merrier. Come on in. Don't go through the stress and the drama of wondering if you're going to get accepted. Come on to a black school. If you want to go to college. See, the, but the problem, Harvard's got like a $7 billion endowment or some ridiculous number like that, you know. But you still got to pay a student loan to go, right? You still got to get a student loan to go. You got $7 billion. Every student that goes to Harvard should have a scholarship. 
seven billion dollars. Every student that gets accepted at Harvard, I could understand them being selective if everybody went there for free. They got seven billion dollar endowment. Everybody still got to pay. But, you know, Jackson State's got a 35, $36 million endowment. So they still got to get lion's share of their money from the state. They can only give so many scholarships away. You know, whether it's athletic or academic, they, they only can do so many. So, but your student loan won't be as high because the tuition's not as high as Harvard or Yale. Or Princeton. I mean, I was I was listening to Joy Reid, and she was talking about her experience as far as how she got into Harvard. That somebody found her, literally some recruiter, and basically came to her town and took her out to dinner and asked her to come. You know, I was just thinking about how I almost went to Princeton because it was like a friend of my mama's cousin or something that was recruited at Princeton and he called me and next thing I know they said I could come. Now they didn't give me a scholarship but they told me I could come. Right? And if you were black and you had any kind of academic potential Dartmouth sent you a letter. <laughs> right? They were they were going after it. Every black kid that they thought could make it they got a letter saying you can come to Dartmouth. Right? So this has been going on for a long time, trying to rectify stuff. But like I said, you, you, if you can't afford or don't want to go through the hassle, that you've got options as a black person to go to these black schools. And there's historically Latinos. There's historic Latino schools now, right? They even have a historic indigenous persons college. So if you don't want to go through that hassle, you got some place to go if you want to get a college education it's not like it's going to be totally denied of you right and I guarantee you that when you get out of those schools you can compete with any one of them I promise you that so you know There's no need to be filled with despair, is what I'm saying. We're going to fight back. Just as Jackson said, we, we persisted. And we will continue to persevere. You're not going to get rid of us that easy. You've been trying for years. Hadn't happened, and it won't. But just understand that we're on guard. We see what you're doing. And we're not going to tolerate it. That's all we're letting you know right now. Whatever we have to do to fix it, we're getting ourselves in position to make that happen. So the more that you buck up, the more that you 
come up with new ways to come at us, we'll be ready. And as long as we don't get distracted, as long as we don't get caught up in other folks' arguments, start touting their language, which will hurt our people, we'll be okay. But like I said, it's just a small fraction. The majority of us understand the struggle. And we understand that our mission is to uplift all of us. So if we stay focused on that, we'll be okay. Until next time.